The People's Republic of China survived the wave of counter-revolutions that swept through the socialist camp governments in the 1980s and early 1990s, but found itself in a world dominated by a sole superpower, U.S. imperialism. In these years, China was integrated into the global capitalist economy as an integral part of manufacturing supply chains and experienced rapid economic growth. But this arrangement was filled with contradictions, both for China's socialist system, for its government, and in terms of its role in world politics. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. We can do this show with you, with your support, but not without it. We're joined again by Dr. Ken Hammond, professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. Ken is the founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University, and he is an activist with Pivot to Peace. Ken, welcome back. Always glad to be here and looking forward to carrying on the conversation. Yes, it's been a remarkable journey. We're marching year by year, decade by decade, from 1949 when the Chinese Communist Party takes power after a 27-year-long civil war proclaim the People's Republic of China, unify the country, chart and announce a socialist path. And China at that time, following a visit from Mao Zedong to the Soviet Union, where he had extensive discussions with Soviet officials, including Stalin, Soviet-China friendship agreement is signed. China and the Soviet Union are together in the socialist camp. And then as we went through the decades, China and the Soviet Union have political struggles. Finally, they have what amounts to a state-to-state -state disputes, not simply a struggle, a political struggle between uh, sister parties, but a struggle really between the two countries where their troops are facing each other by 1969. And then in the 1970s, of course, the United States makes a de facto alliance with the People's Republic of China against the Soviet Union, but at the same time, pivots towards the Soviet Union with rapprochement and detente, meaning the United States was pursuing a policy of divide and conquer, trying to separate and successfully separating the two socialist giants from their earlier alliance. Ken, we, in our last segment, we talked about the end of the 1980s, the counter-revolutionary anti-communist uprisings that were taking place in Eastern Europe, the implosion inside the Soviet Union, and at the same time, a dire threat that was posed to the ruling party and the existing government in China. That was the extended protest, the seven-week-long siege on the capital, basically, 
by what were called the Tiananmen Square protesters. China suppresses those demonstrations, suppresses that movement, is denounced by the Western powers who are supporting the so-called student uprising. That's where we are right now. Now we're entering into the mid-1990s, and there's two important events that happen. One is there is a major economic financial crash called the Asian financial crisis, which sweeps the Asian countries and has a big impact on the global economy. And at the same time, Hong Kong is returned from the British to the People's Republic of China in 1997. First, let's frame it, though. The goal, the priority of the Chinese government after Tiananmen Square, unlike, say, the 1950s or the 60s, which was to promote and support world revolution, be part of the socialist camp, wanting that socialist camp to expand. Now China's goals, its objectives, its priorities are its own economic development almost exclusively And they have a plan, they have a model, they have the opening up, the new reforms, and those include allowing foreign direct investment into the country, all kinds of economic arrangements with Western capitalist corporations and Japanese companies, and the integration of China into the world economy. The goal of China in the 1990s is to have peaceful coexistence with imperialism and finally find a way to have China be fully accepted into the world economy. We're going to talk about that with China's admission to the World Trade Organization in 2001. Nowadays, in 2020, 2021, American officials say that was America's biggest mistake, was to allow China to join the WTO. Anyway, let's start with the mid-1990s. Let's start with Hong Kong. Again, Hong Kong is big in the news. People don't maybe... Well, of course, people who are Chinese or people who are from Hong Kong will know. But for those who aren't from China, not from Hong Kong, but interested in this topic, let's just frame the significance of Hong Kong to China and the significance of its return in 1997. Well, that's a really, really important moment. It's hard to overestimate how significant that was for China's emergence into the global system, into the world order, because it's a recognition on the part of the British, but of the international community more broadly, of China's legitimacy, the legitimacy of the People's Republic, and the return of Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty to recognize its position as an integral part of the People's Republic was a very significant gesture, a very significant turning point, a marker of China's position. The island of Hong Kong had been seized by the British all the way back in 1842. The opposite shore, the area called Kowloon, was taken over by the British not too long after that. And then the further interior, what are called the New Territories, were ceded in 1897 on a 100-year lease. And it was the expiration of that 100-year lease that became the sort of temporal threshold for the return of Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty. Hong Kong had been a British colony. It had been operated 
as the rest of the colonial system had been, as a subordinate component of a British-centered global division of labor. It had become a center for not just the transit trade into and out of China, but of local manufacturing, light industrial manufacturing. And eventually it had emerged after World War II and through the 1950s and 60s as a major financial center for East Asia and beyond. So, you know, Hong Kong had been developed by the British for their own purposes and their own interest. It had been ruled by British appointed governors. There was never any pretense of democracy. There was no participation for even for local elites, particularly, let alone for ordinary citizens and workers within Hong Kong. And as it became clear that China was going to seek the reintegration of Hong Kong to the People's Republic when the lease on the new territories expired, the British, in a period where relations between the West and China were a little more positive, the British, I think, wanted to carry through this return of Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty as a gesture, as a way of acknowledging and recognizing China's emergence into and integration into the existing global order. So they pulled some shenanigans along the way. They tried to set up, they kind of laid some mines for the future in trying to transform the political situation within Hong Kong in the last few years before 1997. But basically, China and Britain agreed to a return of sovereignty, and they agreed that after that return, China would preserve for Hong Kong a special status. It is a special administrative region within the People's Republic. And it is governed under something called the Basic Law, which is a separate quasi-constitutional order, separate from the constitution of the People's Republic, although as an integral part of the People's Republic, it remains subordinate to that larger constitutional framework. But the Basic Law has been acknowledged by both sides of the original agreement and has been maintained in its essential features, as was agreed upon at the time, that it would be maintained for the next 50 years uh, until 2047. And here we are well over half the way down that process. And although there's been some fairly minor tinkering with it, the, the basic realities are that Hong Kong still preserves its own distinctive political system. It has a multi-party electoral system. It's a complex one, but not dissimilar from other Asian countries, such as Indonesia, for example. And Hong Kong has been effectively brought back into the administration of the People's Republic. Recent events there, which we can talk about perhaps in our next session, have been a little challenging. But 1997, the return of Hong Kong to Chinese sovereignty, an important moment signifying both China's reemergence into the global system and the recognition and acknowledgement of that by the Western powers, most particularly, of course, by Britain itself. At the time of the victory of the Chinese Revolution in 1949, the communist-led revolutionary army could have easily taken Hong Kong. The British were in no position to fight. In fact, the British were preparing to flee if the Mao-led communist revolution decided to seize it. Why do you think that it was not a priority for Mao and the Maoist leadership in the beginning? 
Well, I think, you know, the same could be said about the Portuguese enclave over at Macau, just across the Pearl River estuary. Portugal had established its position there all the way back in the 16th century. And that would have been even easier for the Chinese to reabsorb in 1949. And of course, again, in the late 1960s, during the Cultural Revolution, there was significant political turmoil in Hong Kong. The PLA could easily have rolled in. The fresh water supplies that Hong Kong depends upon are actually pumped in from the rest of China. And simply turning off the taps would have brought Hong Kong to a standstill, which would easily have led to it being reincorporated. But I think from 1949 on down through the 50s and the 60s and all the way till the 90s, really the 80s when the negotiations began, that the PRC understood that there were features of the particular situation of Hong Kong, which could be of value, of use for the government of the People's Republic as a financial center, as a sort of window to the larger global system, trade going through Hong Kong, Chinese goods that could be exported to Hong Kong and then re-exported from there, goods coming into China via Hong Kong, financial arrangements that could be carried on via Hong Kong. These all had a utility function for the Chinese, which made the inconvenience, I suppose you would say, of militarily retaking the colony, you know, not necessary. It was easier and more useful more functional to preserve Hong Kong as the kind of enclave that it was at that moment. The difference by the time we get down to the 1980s and the 1990s, of course, is that having embarked upon the program of reform and opening, China was no longer so reliant upon Hong Kong as an interface with the larger global system. China was entering into that system itself, being accepted into that system, using its entry into that system as part of the overall program of reform, this idea of developing China's domestic economy, its productive economy by using market mechanisms, including the welcoming of foreign direct investment and the appropriation, the absorption of technologies of production from the outside world. Hong Kong no longer played that sort of pivotal role. Shanghai was emerging as the new trade center and the new financial center. And so China didn't have to pursue the military reacquisition of Hong Kong because it was sort of in everybody's interest, or at least in what they felt to be their interest at the time, for Hong Kong to be successfully reintegrated with China. And of course, Macau returns to Chinese sovereignty just two years later in 1999 as well. So those last vestiges of European colonialism, imperialist, actual control of Chinese territories were both dispensed with at the very end of the 1990s, just as China is emerging into this global economic and political order. So Hong Kong returns to China in 1997 after having been stolen as a part of the Opium Wars in, well, in 1839-1842. We talked about it earlier, but let's just remind the audience, for those listening to this segment, the sheer magnitude of the violence employed by the British, by Queen Victoria and the British monarchy against China and why China was being punished back in that time period and punished by means of having Hong Kong taken over, stolen by the British? Well, of course, the British acquisition of Hong Kong 
is an integral part of the Opium War, the first Opium War from 1839 to 42. Uh, the British had been trading with China for centuries, as other Westerners had, but had been dependent upon their supply of silver to purchase Chinese commodities. China was producing the most sophisticated, the most desirable commodities in the world, porcelain, silk textiles, some cotton textiles, other kinds of manufactured goods, tea, other agricultural products. And the Chinese were happy to sell these in the global economy. They had been doing this also for centuries. But the foreigners, the Westerners, didn't really have any goods, any products of their own that they could trade with China. So they'd had to be bringing silver to China. China. Fortunately, they'd had a long and steady supply of silver from the mines of the Spanish New World. But by the 18th century, those resources were diminishing and the British were feeling a little desperate to come up with some way to enhance their trading position with China. They were taking over India at that time. India had the most sophisticated cotton textile industry in the world. The British, who were also ambitious to develop their own cotton textile industry, systematically destroyed the Bengali looms and, and textile production facilities, forced thousands and thousands of Indian farmers out of growing cotton. The British could buy cotton from the slave plantations of the American South, so they disrupted the cotton growing economy of India. But those farmers had to grow something, so the British had them grow opium. And they harvested that opium, processed that into a drug suitable for recreational consumption, found that they could market that in China. And in the early decades of the 19th century, the opium trade grew by leaps and bounds. But it was illegal. It was recognized as a problematic import that the Chinese wanted to regulate and control. The British chose to interpret this as a free trade issue, the ideology of free trade, which was being embraced as industrial development made British commodities more globally competitive, now was utilized as a rationalization for forcing the Chinese to open their ports to British merchants beyond just the single port of Guangzhou or Canton, as the Westerners called it. So the British Navy was sent. They sailed up and down the South China coast for three years, going into harbors, firing their guns at the ports, killing thousands and tens of thousands of Chinese people, all in order to intimidate the Qing dynasty into agreeing to open their ports, which they finally did with the Treaty of Nanjing, the first of the unequal treaties signed in 1842 that opened five additional ports, allowed the British to trade whatever they wanted with whomever they wanted. The flood of goods that poured into China dramatically disrupted China's domestic economy, which had been one of the most sophisticated early capitalist commercial economies in the world. It now collapsed as British goods and other Western goods flooded in. So the events that lead to the acquisition of Hong Kong by the British are part of this larger imperialist imposition that fundamentally changes the geopolitical relationships, not just between Britain and China, but of course, between the European industrial countries and the rest of the world. And it's that legacy, that hangover of classic 19th century British imperialism that finally is brought to an end with the return of Hong Kong in 1997. And again, for our, especially for our U.S. audience, the psychological impact or the impact on 
the thinking of Chinese people about their place in the world and their place in relationship to Western powers. This is what is called the beginning of the century of humiliation, the seizure of Hong Kong, the importation of opium. And again, a lot of people who are not Chinese or outside of China might not fully recognize the significance of this as a factor in terms of Chinese public opinion. And the reason I mentioned public opinion is that people talk a lot of times about the government or what the government says, but the government, and this goes true for any government, it can't be completely independent from how the masses of people feel, especially if they feel strongly about something. How significant is this development in Hong Kong in terms of Chinese political thinking? Well, it's immensely influential. You know, you mentioned the century of humiliation, which is basically the century from the 1840s to the 1940s, ending, of course, with liberation in 1949 and the establishment of the People's Republic, when, as Mao Zedong says at Tiananmen, the Chinese people have stood up. They've stood up because for a century they had been oppressed. They had been beaten down repeatedly, not just by the British, all the other Western powers piled on the United States, which also was selling opium in China in, in this same period. They were buying their opium from the Ottoman Empire in the Mediterranean, but the great New England clipper ships were also part of the opium trade. And the French and the others all piled on as well, all signing unequal treaties with China that subjected China to all kinds of humiliations in the course of the 19th and the early 20th century. China lost control over its borders. It lost control over its international revenues first. The unequal treaties gave the foreigners the power to set the tariffs on their own imports. And of course, they set them very, very low. Eventually, even the inland revenue system System within China was taken over and operated by the foreign powers as more and more so-called treaty ports were opened in the interior of China. In 1860-61, there was another opium war as a result of which British and French troops occupied Beijing. They looted, they burned down the Summer Palace, this beautiful complex of buildings northwest of Beijing, and took home to Britain and France art treasures worth probably billions of dollars today that are still, you know, proudly displayed in museums and country houses and chateaux and things like that, just as a straightforward looting of the wealth of imperial China. So these kinds of repeated humiliations, this isn't something that's just sort of, oh, they kind of got the short end of the stick for a while. This was a concerted effort by the Western powers to break China, which had been, as I've said before, had been the most sophisticated, the most prosperous country around. During the Enlightenment in Europe, China had been admired as almost the platonic ideal of good government. But in the 19th century, it became politically necessary and militarily possible to humiliate China. And going from this position of global leadership and respect to one of subordination and oppression becoming a component part of Western imperialist division of labor in the world, it had a huge psychological impact on Chinese people. 
Nowadays, if you read Western bourgeois media about the China relationship and the situation in China, references to the century of humiliation are generally treated as, oh, just get over it, you know, that the Chinese continue to invoke the century of humiliation as if somehow that's not a legitimate historical consciousness or a legitimate position. But, you know, in fact, the legacy of this persists. China, even after liberation in 1949, had to make tremendous efforts to overcome the economic and human deficits which had been created by the systematic exploitation of China, by this whole conjury of Western powers that went on, you know, for over 100 years. So, you know, to be dismissive of that now simply reflects Western attitudes of, in some some ways, wishing they could get back to the good old days. There's a lot of sort of romanticization you see in popular media and books and things of the glory days of the treaty ports and what a great time Westerners had in China back in the good old days. And those days are gone and hopefully will never, ever return, not only in China, but anywhere else. And the Chinese people don't forget that. They remember that. It's a living legacy that parents and grandparents pass on to their children, and it shapes the way that China sees itself being treated by other powers in the world today. And I think that it's vital to recognize that. And that's why something like the return of Hong Kong in 1997 was so important. It was celebrated all over China. It wasn't just a ceremony down on the docks in Hong Kong. This was a day of national celebration because the last territories that had been ripped away from China by the brute force of Western guns were coming back into the national embrace. And I think that the continuing awareness of that, the continuing consciousness of that, when the Chinese say, you know, that Western meddling in Hong Kong is interfering in the internal affairs of the country, that's not just political rhetoric. That's a deeply felt sense of sovereignty and the violation of that sovereignty. Quite something that here we are in 2021 and the Western governments, the British, the U.S. government, the U.S. Congress, filled with tender concern about the democratic rights of people in Hong Kong. And during this entire colonial period where this part of China that was seized and was held by the British, there was no democracy, no self-government. The leadership in Hong Kong was appointed not from Beijing, it was appointed in London. Yes. I mean, it's a stunning level of double standard hypocrisy. And yet there's no one, I believe, in the US Congress, and this is a consequence of the complete imperialist demonization of China and the imperialist witch hunt against anyone who retains even an objective faculty about China-US or China-British relations, no one in Congress says, well, wait a second, we didn't stomp our feet and pound our chest and demand sanctions against the British when they were denying people in Hong Kong any even pretend democracy, when in fact this territory was a colonial subject under the government of London. Right. I mean, the reality is that Hong Kong today is more 
democratic, if that's how we want to characterize it, than it has ever been, than it was under the British ever. And it is more democratic than it was at the time of its return to Chinese sovereignty. There's been a slow but steady expansion of the franchise. It's structured in particular ways, which are somewhat at variance. It's certainly not a basic two-party, let's trade control back and forth system the way that the United States has. It's not a system that's exactly the same as, say, England itself or Germany. It's closer to other modern post-colonial Asian democracies. I mentioned Indonesia before. Malaysia is another example. But it is a functioning democracy. There are multiple political parties. Elections take place on a regular basis. And that's a significant advance, I suppose one would say, from certainly what the top-down white person from London telling everybody what to do model that was in place you know, for 150 years. The other part, of course, is the idea that the United States Congress or American political figures have any business commenting on and legislating on the internal political arrangements of China, of the People's Republic, of which Hong Kong is an integral part. On what basis do they do that? You know, should China be passing legislation to talk about the situation of native Hawaiians? Should China be imposing sanctions on the United States because of the treatment of African Americans? The hypocrisy of the American Congress is just stunning as they flagrantly, repeatedly, and delightedly intervene, interfere in the internal governance of these territories. When, of course, a city comparable to Hong Kong, the District of Columbia, has no democratic representation in Congress itself. You know, again, the hypocrisy of worrying about the internal affairs of China while completely denying democratic rights to the people of the district, to the people of Puerto Rico, to the people of Guam, you know, the hypocrisy is just amazing. Let's go back to the economic issues, because, of course, that is the priority for China and China's own economic development, the alleviation of widespread and dire poverty in the country. Again, a consequence of the diminution or the devolution of the Chinese economy as a consequence of foreign intervention, as a consequence of the century of humiliation. China's leadership, well, let's just say this, since 1949, whether it was the Mao Zedong grouping, which was in leadership, or Deng Xiaoping, or Lu Xiaoqi, or whoever in the Chinese Communist Party, the goal, the top goal, the top priority was always the economic development of China. There's no question about that. What they had differences over was the application of methods, tactical methods, but there was no disagreement that that was the top priority. So here we are in the mid-1990s. China's been integrated to some extent into the world economy. It's not yet in the World Trade Organization. The U.S. hasn't now yet let China, in spite of the fact that it's a very, very, very big country, still has not gained admission. And in 1997, there's a huge financial meltdown in East Asia and in Southeast Asia. And China sort of demonstrates through its own model, which is, again, it's a government led by the Communist Party. It says its perspective is socialist, but it's using a variety of methods, including the market mechanism and private property and capitalist property relations 
alongside and in parallel with state-owned enterprises and state-owned banks to develop the country, what is called socialism with Chinese characteristics. But the financial crisis sweeps Asia, and it looks like it might be a huge global meltdown. And China's economy fares quite well in relationship to others. Let's just talk quickly about the impact of that. And then I want to move to the pivotal year of 2001, which has both the integration of China in December 2001 into the World Trade Organization, but a couple months prior to that, the terrorist attacks on September 11th in New York and Washington, which also impacts China-U.S. relations. But let's start with the mid-90s, 1997 Asian financial crisis. Sure. The financial crisis of 97 was largely a monetary crisis. It was a crisis caused by exchange rate speculators in the global economy. One of the functions of a global capitalist economy gives rise to the ability to buy and sell currencies, different currencies from different countries, in order to try to extract some profit from those exchanges, from those transactions. And speculators in the monetary markets will look for currencies which they feel are either slightly overvalued or slightly undervalued so that they can purchase or sell them and manipulate the markets in ways that will allow them to maximize their profits. And in 97, speculators targeted the currency of Thailand, the baht, as vulnerable went into the Bangkok financial markets and went after the bot in global markets in a way that caused a dramatic collapse in the value of that currency, which had a very negative effect on the Thai economy. But these markets are so integrated and different financial institutions and corporations have holdings in different currencies in ways that mean that a downturn in the value of one currency can have a ripple effect in other areas. And very quickly, this spread through Southeast Asia, in particular in Indonesia, the ringgit, the currency there, came into a serious crisis. It was seen as vulnerable. The Philippines were targeted by monetary speculators, and it began to spread throughout Southeast Asia. The South Korean currency, the won, had a lot of vulnerability, and South Korean economy was damaged by this. The other big currency in the region, not so much the renminbi, the currency within China, but the Hong Kong dollar was an obvious target. The Hong Kong dollar famously has historically been incredibly stable. It's been kind of the linchpin of a lot of the monetary markets around Southeast Asia. And so the speculators were hopeful of being able to disrupt that, which would have thrown the system into even greater chaos. But the People's Republic, into which, of course, Hong Kong was just being reintegrated, uh, the central bank, the People's Bank of China and the central financial authorities moved decisively using the advantages of a socialist economy, the ability of a strong socialist state led by the Communist Party to intervene. They backed the Hong Kong currency. They poured huge amounts of foreign exchange holdings, which they had. China had been accumulating foreign exchange you know, for quite a few years by this point, and they had deep pockets. And they were able to go in, shore up the Hong Kong dollar so that it remained stable. 
which meant that the Hong Kong economy was not disrupted. China's domestic economy was not disrupted. And indeed, these interventions by China served not only to protect Hong Kong and China itself, but became a factor for restabilizing the Southeast Asian monetary system in the later months of 97 and on down through 98 and 99. So it really was a remarkable demonstration of the superiority of a system with a strong central planning authority, an effective economic role for the party and the state, not just the banks and the corporations, but ordinary people whose savings would be denominated in these local currencies. They were the people who would really suffer in these kinds of economic collapses of monetary crises. The banks and the financial operators and the corporations, they would have some trouble, but they would probably be able to weather the storm. But ordinary people are the real vulnerable population in those kind of circumstances. And the actions of China were decisive in keeping China and Hong Kong stable and in helping the rest of the Southeast and East Asian economies to sort of weather the storm better than would have been the case had they been left to the vagaries of the marketplace itself. So now let's look at this period. So the financial crisis, Asian financial crisis, a monetary crisis, as you label it, in 1997, spills into 1998. I'm reading media reports about how it impacted China because China's goal at that time is also to really fully integrate into the capitalist, imperialist-dominated world economy vis-a-vis its admission to the World Trade Organization, the WTO. And again, that finally takes place in December 2001. I want to read to you this one report and ask your opinion about it. After the 1997 Asian financial crisis, China sold off or merged many unprofitable state-owned enterprises. In 1998, China reformed the state council to greatly reduce the mandate of the state planning commission and increase the mandate of the state economic and trade commission. The shift also corresponded to the change in premiership from Li Peng to Zhu Rongji, the latter of whom strongly believed that China needed deeper economic restructuring. This restructuring, which had been happening since the 80s, included many different elements. But again, this was obviously a discussion, a debate, a struggle going on inside of China, but also the sort of pot of gold at the end of the rainbow would be if China's finally admitted into the WTO. But the US and the Western powers say, well, look, there's a price to be paid. The price to be paid to for admission is you have to do other economic reforms that are really not so much about whether they accelerate or decelerate the restoration of capitalist property relations, but whether or not they're beneficial to Western economies. And again, China-U.S. trade had been deeply impacted by the Jackson-Vanik Amendment of 1974 that made it illegal for U.S. technology companies or U.S. companies in general to share or trade in technology either with the Soviet Union or with China. But that sort of prohibitive trade law, the Jackson-Vanik Amendment of 1974, would not apply to a member nation of the WTO. So obviously, China, which was desperately, urgently trying to introduce new and higher technologies into its economy, needed to be able to fully and freely trade 
in order to have access. So let's just sort of untangle some of this again for our audience. Well, I think that we need to consider this period as an integral part of the overall thrust of Chinese policy over the last 40 plus years, which has been, as you've noted, to try to use these market mechanisms as a way of developing China's economy, of developing the productive economy. China had achieved great things in the first 30 years after liberation, annual economic growth of over 3%, a tremendous enhancement of public health, of life expectancy, reduction of infant mortality, provision of educational services, upgrading of housing, building the economy, employment. Lots of great things had gone on. And yet, by 1979, China still faced a kind of egalitarianism of poverty. It was a society that had achieved significant stability and significant progress, but the material conditions of livelihood for the vast majority of people were still rather slim. And the leadership at that point decided that you know, what they really wanted to do was try to move in the direction of the kind of material prosperity and even eventually abundance that would allow for a true socialism, a true socialism in which the fruits of social labor would be socially distributed. But there had to be fruits of that social labor. There had to be, you know, not just the distribution of scarce resources, but the pursuit of that kind of abundance that would allow true socialism to begin to emerge. And they decided, they chose a path which would utilize markets and utilize the integration with the embrace of the existing global economic order in order to advance that project. Marx talks about how people make their own history, but they don't do so in circumstances of their own choosing. You know, they have to work with the conditions that they find themselves in. And China found itself in a global system dominated by American imperialism, dominated by global capital. And what they have tried to do is to make the best use of that that they could. And they recognize the kinds of realities that you were just talking about, that in order to be able to access the best productive technologies, to be able to begin to develop their own research and development capabilities, they needed to be a part of that global system. And joining the WTO was going to be a significant threshold towards the attainment of that kind of access. So in a sense, they embarked upon a path, which we have to recognize is a risky endeavor. It's not a guaranteed outcome. Engaging with these market mechanisms, allowing foreign direct investment, allowing the growth of a domestic capital sector, this carries risks. It carries challenges. And the ability of the party to maintain its leading position, to maintain its dedication to the social project. This is obviously going to be vulnerable to certain contradictions. How that will turn out in the end, of course, remains very much a work in progress. But that is the enterprise. That is the project that the party embarked upon and to which they rededicated themselves in the early 90s. And so that pursuit of membership in the WTO 
a fundamental component, being able to turn that policy, turn that aspiration into a substantive reality to be able to grow the economy. And of course, we know that the reality is that in the first decade plus of the 21st century, the Chinese economy grew at unprecedented rates. The material standards of living of the Chinese people were dramatically enhanced. Hundreds of millions of people could be lifted out of dire poverty. So many of the objectives, many of the ideals that were encompassed in this project were realized. Other contradictory aspects, inequality, environmental stress, things like that came along as well. And those are still in the process of being addressed. But gaining access to the WTO was a critical moment in trying to make that aspiration into a reality. Can China is finally admitted into the World Trade Organization in December 2001. Two months before that, the World Trade Center was destroyed, both of the Twin Towers with planes that struck them. We all know that story. Al-Qaeda claimed credit for it or took responsibility for it. And the U.S. embarked on the worldwide war against terrorism, as it was called. I mean, quickly that morphed into just a pretext for imperialist intervention against countries that had nothing to do with September 11th, including the invasion of Iraq in 2003. But during that time period, the U.S. was working with the Chinese government on the issue of terrorism and, in fact, was working with the Chinese government and supporting the Chinese government in anti-terrorist efforts in the western area of Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs are and other non-Han people. Let's talk about what happened right then. It is, I think, very revealing. Right now, the United States poses the question of China's policy in Xinjiang as simply a matter of the violation of human rights, or even a genocide, which is a charge, an allegation for which there is actually no evidence whatsoever. But let's go back. In 2001, the Bush administration and Colin Powell, who was then Secretary of State, working with and developing a level of relationship or cooperation with China. Let's talk about that. Well, I think it's a very contradictory period in some ways. We should remember, too, that just a couple of years before this, there had been the incident where American warplanes bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade during the NATO interventions into the wars in the former Yugoslavia. There had been tensions in the air over the South China Sea around Hainan Island between American aircraft and Chinese PLA aircraft that were defending China's airspace. So there'd been frictions, certainly, in the late 90s and right around the turn of in, into the 21st century. But with the events of 9-11, the Bush administration certainly uh, strikes out in a pretty single-minded direction of the so-called war on terror which, as you note, quickly morphs beyond that and becomes a pretext for the invasion of Iraq and other kinds of imperialist adventures, many of which continue on down to the present day. But it does lead to a, I suppose we might almost call it a marriage of convenience, at least for a while, between 
the United States and China over these issues of Islamic fundamentalism, the efforts by some elements within the Islamic world, and we want to be clear that this is a particular subset, a particular grouping, set of groupings within the much broader Islamic community, who have the ambition of creating these Islamic states, these religious states, which would impose their own rules and regulations, Sharia law and other kinds of governance on populations. And China was facing some elements of this in the far west, in Xinjiang. There had been in Xinjiang all the way back in the 1930s, a breakaway so-called Republic of East Turkestan, which had tried to, at that time, establish an Islamic state, denying things like education to women and other kinds of more modernist policies that had been in place under the Republic in China. But now, at this time, the United States and China could cooperate. They could find some common interests, a mutual interest in trying to push back against this tide of Islamic fundamentalism. Fighters from Xinjiang, Uyghurs and Tajiks and Kazakhs and Kyrgyz and people like this, who were attracted to the fundamentalist program, were being trained in Afghanistan, were being trained in camps elsewhere were taking part in terrorist activities, both within China and being deployed in other parts of the world as well. And so for a while, there was a convergence of interest in which American and Chinese intelligence communities collaborated on measures designed to fight back against these threats. We should remember that there were a number of Uyghur fighters who had been captured in Afghanistan who wound up being interned at Guantanamo. And while we are resolutely opposed to the maintenance of Guantanamo as this renegade international prison, it's also worth taking note that these Uyghur fighters were part of this broad fundamentalist coalition, not just something confined to Afghanistan or a particular country, but something that was truly international in its own way. And that threat has persisted. When we consider the situation in Xinjiang over the last 20 plus years, you know, it has involved ongoing terrorist activities, again, not just in Xinjiang, in other parts of China, including all the way up to the national capital in Beijing, where bombings and other attacks have been carried out. So this is an ongoing problem. Now, of course, as the interests of American capital and the Chinese socialist project have diverged again, the specter of genocide and human rights violations and all this is used pretty regularly to beat on China. But the fact that that is utilized in one historical moment and totally overwritten in another historical moment certainly suggests the politically convenient and politically motivated nature of these kinds of accusations. The use of the genocide label, as you noticed, is completely unsupported and really shameful for the politicians, not just Americans, but the politicians in the West who've been mouthing this. Yes, and in our last segment in this series on the foreign policy of the People's Republic of China, we'll go a little bit more into what's happening in the western part of China in Xinjiang and with the Uyghurs. We'll talk more about that. But again, during this time period, in 2001, 2002, the U.S. government labeled these organizations like the East Turkestan Liberation Organization and East Turkestan Islamic Movement 
officially as terrorist organizations. Those labels have been removed now as the U.S. makes the argument that the only thing that's happening in Western China is a systematic discrimination and racism by the majority Han government of the People's Republic of China against minority peoples, Muslim peoples, the Uyghurs, and that, in fact, the Chinese government is committing genocide. And this is, without evidence being provided, accepted, again, because now, while there is still some degree and some level of cooperation between the U.S. and China, the atmosphere has turned sharply in a different direction towards great power conflict, preparing the population here in the United States for eventual war and certainly with confrontation with China. So the whole way the struggle in Western China with the Uyghurs is framed is so fundamentally different than it was just 19 years ago. Ken, I want to close this segment though, because we've gotten to 2001. China is allowed admission into the World Trade Organization Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor, the second final or third final national security advisor for Donald Trump, one of his last speeches, working in tandem with Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State for Trump, they both unleashed this like huge attack against China as they were going out the door following the their loss in the November 2020 election. But Robert O'Brien said, admitting China to the World Trade Organization was a mistake. What we, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have a speech in front of me, but what he's saying is that we assumed that China would become more like us, that China would become more liberal, that it would adopt our democratic values. All of this euphemistic language, meaning we anticipated that the Chinese Communist Party, if it was fully integrated into a world capitalist economy, would either leave the path of socialism or be overthrown by those who insisted on leaving the path of socialism. And instead, China having access to the world economy, having some degree of free trade, has been able to use its access to markets and to technology to grow and to develop, to alleviate poverty. And if anything, the government in China, the communist-led government, is stronger now, more popular now than it would have been in 2001. So the problem, the fundamental mistake was the United States should never, ever, ever have let China into the WTO, meaning we should have just continued to try to economically isolate China, sanction China, deprive China of access. And now as the U.S. government is pursuing a policy of decoupling or trying to remove U.S. connection to China in supply lines, It's a policy being pursued by the Democrats and the Republicans. But we'll talk about all of that in our next and final segment in this series. But I just want to have you, if you would, take us in broad strokes from 2001, China's admitted into the World Trade Organization, up to 2010, 2011, when Barack Obama announces a pivot to Asia. And just again, for our audience, the U.S. has pivoted to Asia multiple times in the past. It did so in 1899, and a million Filipinos died. It pivoted towards Asia at the end of World War II, and the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on Japanese cities. It pivoted to Asia in 1950 with the war against Korea. It pivoted to Asia again with the war in Vietnam. America's pivots to Asia have been pretty bad for Asians. And we have Barack Obama announcing 
the pivot to Asia in 2011. And in our final episode, Ken, we're going to focus on the years from 2011 to 2021, that last decade. But let's talk about the remaining part of the first decade of the 2000s from 2001 to 2010. China continues to grow economically. There's indications that America is becoming uncomfortable. The attacks on China are growing, but they haven't congealed into this new doctrine of major power conflict is inevitable. I certainly thought during that entire period, what China was basically trying to do was not poke the bear, not create a confrontation with the U.S., not challenge U.S. hegemony in other areas. It didn't really challenge in a strong way the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Even in 2011, when the U.N. passed the resolution authorizing force against the independent government in Libya, the Gaddafi government, China and Russia, who could have vetoed it because they have veto power at the Security Council, they didn't veto. They didn't vote yes. They abstained, but they refused to use their veto. So it seemed to me that China was more or less trying to just at least delay the confrontation with the United States by not challenging the tenets of American hegemonic rule, global rule, except for perhaps right in China's own backyard. Anyway, do you agree with that? Yes, I think that to understand that decade in particular, we need to reflect back just slightly to Deng Xiaoping, who died in 1997. Deng Xiaoping, earlier in the 1990s, had advised the then leader of the party, Jiang Zemin, And again, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but basically he had advised that China going forward from that point should kind of take a low profile, not really push its agenda, but use the opportunities which were emerging to develop the economy. Use this period as a time to sort of build domestic capabilities, economically, politically, militarily, but keep a low profile. Get along and go along and, as you exactly as you say, don't poke the bear, don't rock the boat, because there was an understanding that this was an experiment, it was a venture, and in order for it to succeed, China needed to be able to continue to have access to the global economy, continue to be able to attract foreign investment, continue to be able to accumulate foreign reserves to operate even its state-owned enterprises in profitable ways. It needed to continue pursuing its course of accumulation in order to enrich the country, in order to raise people's livelihoods, all of that, but that they wanted to do that in a way that didn't provoke confrontation with or even particularly anxiety on the part of the Western powers. And of course, that decade from 2001 to 2011, the United States in particular was pretty focused on this war on terror, you know, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, the problems with Libya, the emerging situation in Syria, all of those things. That's really what the sort of neoliberal, neoconservative, those funny sort of interchangeable terms, leadership in Washington 
was focused on. And they kept an eye on China. They were certainly paying attention to what was developing there. But China was on the back burner. China wasn't the main concern. China had joined the WTO. They had done so. They had jumped through the appropriate hoops to do so. And so this was the decade when the Western powers, especially the United States, the capitalist elite in the West, they kind of hoped and told themselves that the magic was just going to work itself out in China. It might take some time, but they needed to be a little patient with it. They had other fish to fry right then. But eventually, China would, as you were just saying, would sort of automatically be transformed, either by the leadership changing its orientation or by some sort of color revolution or dramatic regime change event, but that the growth of the economy, the growth of markets in China would inevitably lead to its transformation. And really the pivot, when the pivot comes along in 2011, it's kind of a reflection of American elites realizing that that wasn't what was happening. That isn't the path that China was taking. And of course, the pivot takes place in 2011. The new leadership under Xi Jinping comes into place in 2012. And that ushers in a new era, a new phase in China. And I know that that's what we want to talk about in our final session, the period since 2011-2012, in which China has taken a little more proactive, a little more assertive position in the world. But I think understanding that first decade of the 20th century, really it was a conscious choice on the part of the Chinese leadership to play it low key, to take it in under the radar, let the process go forward, achieve some of the objectives of the reform period, and allow China to become strong enough, self-reliant enough that when the time came, they would be able to stand up to the bullying of the West on a much more solid basis. I want to conclude, Ken, with just this observation, and then we'll conclude and go to our next segment. But when one studies history, you can't but notice that history is filled, even though there are strong identifiable patterns, that it's filled with unexpected twists and turns. There is, in fact, what might be called the law of unintended consequences. And so history is filled with all kinds of ironies. One of the ironies here that we've been summarizing is that the United States, after the collapse of the socialist camp, partly brought about by the U.S. machinations that divided China and the Soviet Union from each other, but after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist camp, the United States was indeed the unipolar power of the world. No one contested with American hegemony, really. And as a consequence, the U.S. grew very, very arrogant. Its hubris was, in a way, untethered. And so as the neocons came into office, especially, I mean, Clinton, he wasn't a neocon, but they destroyed the last remaining socialist government in Europe, the Yugoslav government and the NATO war in 1999. Then Bush comes in and the neocons, and they're like, no, we're going to remake the whole Middle East. We're going to invade Iraq, and then we're going to take down Libya, and we're going to take down Syria, and we're going to take down Hezbollah in Lebanon, and we're going to reshape Somalia. And finally, the big prize, we're going to, we're going to take down Iran too. We're going to take down all the governments of the resource-rich Middle East that were independent and born out of the anti-colonial struggles earlier. We're going to do that because we can. That's how strong they felt. And so they went to war in the Middle East and into South Asia 
They got bogged down in that war. They didn't or couldn't really respond to the rise of China peacefully sort of under the radar. And during that entire decade, while they were bogged down in wars that they could not win, wars that were not necessary, wars that were really motivated by this unipolar imperial arrogance and hubris, China China grew. And today, Ken, it's not a unipolar world. It's not a unipolar world at all. China took advantage and grew strong because it wasn't under ferocious attack. Russia got back on its feet. It is one of those ironies of history that American arrogance after the collapse of the socialist camp, its preoccupation with being the unipolar power has in fact facilitated the development of a multipolar world. I'll give you the final word. Well, I think the final word, I'm not sure exactly the locus classicus, I think it might even be biblical, is that pride goeth before a fall. (laughs) Perfect way to end. That was Ken Hammond. Ken is a professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University, founding director of the Confucius Institute at the New Mexico State University. He's a journalist and an author as well. He has recent works that you can find at Monthly Review, also at Liberation School, and probably many other places. He is also an organizer and an activist with Pivot to Peace. The Socialist Program, our program, will conclude with Professor Hammond in our next episode, our final episode, where we look, again, a deeper dive at China's foreign policy between 2011 and 2021. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. <laughs>